On behalf of Calvary Bible Church of Palisadro, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our pastor and teacher, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study designed to help us grow in the Word. Ephesians chapter 4, I'll be reading verses 1 and 2, if you'll follow along now, as I begin Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. I therefore... A prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. May the Lord bless this reading of his word and our time together in it. You may be seated. Well, we've come this morning to the halfway point in the book of Ephesians, and what have we seen so far? Well, in the first three chapters, which are doctrinal, Paul has emphasized who we are in Christ, our position in Christ, in the heavenly places, all because of his sovereign grace. I mean, the the main idea is that uh, God's wisdom, glory, and power are displayed in his eternal purpose for the church, made up of both Jews and Gentiles, reconciled in Christ. And in chapter 1, after the introduction, Paul outlined the incomparable blessings that come to us because the Father chose us, the Son redeemed us, and the Holy Spirit sealed us all to the praise of His glory. And because these truths are so profoundly deep and vitally important, Paul prayed that God would enlighten or open our minds to comprehend the riches of all that God has given to us as members of the body of Christ. And then in chapter 2, Paul contrasted what we were before we met Christ. We were dead in trespasses and sins with, with, with what he has, has done for us and, and then with what he's done for us by his grace. He, he has raised us from the dead, seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. He wanted the Gentile Christians to remember that formerly they were completely separated from Christ and God's covenant promises. But now they have been brought near by the blood of Christ, who is himself our peace, and has reconciled Jews and Gentiles into one body through the cross, so that in him we are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. In chapter 3, Paul began by mentioning that he was a prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of the Gentiles, and this thought gave him concern that his imprisonment might cause some of the Gentile believers to doubt God's sovereign control over these trials, and so he digressed to show them that God had revealed to him the mystery that had been concealed in the past, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, and God's wisdom is now being displayed through the church in accordance with his eternal purpose. And so Paul's tribulations were on behalf of the Gentiles for their glory, and this caused Paul again to break out in prayer. And he bowed his knees before God the Father, praying for people he loved, and his first request was that according to the riches of his glory... 
God would grant that his readers may be strengthened with spiritual power through the Spirit in their inner being so that Christ may dwell in their hearts. In other words, that he would be at the very center of their lives through faith. And then between this first request and, and his second request, Paul reminded the Ephesians that like a tree, they, they were rooted and grounded. They were held firm, safe, and secure in the love of God. And then he prayed that his readers might be able to grasp the breadth and length and height and depth. In other words, the vastness of Christ's matchless love and that they would be able to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. But, but this knowing that he is speaking about is, is not just in the intellect, but rather in the heart. What Paul had in mind is a knowledge of personal experience and participation. Because the love of God in Christ is, is not merely a truth that Christians believe and confess. It is a truth that we are to experience, a truth that we are to live. And thirdly, Paul prayed that we might be filled with all the fullness of God. In other words, Paul is asking that we experience a greater measure of God's presence in our lives, that we might just be saturated with God, that our lives may be more and more emptied of self and filled to overflowing with the presence of God, to, to have as much of God as is possible for a redeemed sinner to have. You know, to be filled completely with God so that God's character, His attributes, and His love define our existence, our lives, and our behavior. I mean, God's supreme goal in saving us and, and bringing us to Himself is to make us more and more like Himself by filling us with all that He is and has. And that is the goal toward which we move. We are in the process of becoming more and more like Christ. And Paul then ended his prayer with the doxology in verses 20 and 21 of chapter 3. And that brings us now to the second half of the book, chapters 4 through 6, which are practical in nature and focus on Christian behavior. And you see, this is important because the Bible is clear that, that there is a practical side to Christian doctrine. What a person believes has a direct relationship with how they behave and how they live their lives. I mean, there are some Christians who will defend the truth at the drop of a hat, but their personal lives deny the very doctrines they profess to love. As Paul said to Titus, they profess that they know God, but they deny, deny Him by their works. But you see, genuine conversion implies a changed life. Consequently, the believer must never forget that his salvation experience is much more than just a past event. Now, that, was, that past event was merely the beginning. The new birth initiates the believer into a new life that is to be lived. And in these chapters, Paul shows us how comprehending God's glorious purpose for the church and our position in Christ should cause us to live in practical godliness. As one man said, the apostle now turns from exposition to exhortation, from what God has done to what we must be and do, from doctrine to duty, from the credenda to the agenda, from mind-stretching theology to its down-to-earth, concrete implications in everyday living. One commentator gave this simple outline of the book Ephesians. But in Ephesians chapters 1 through 3, uh, the commentator said, we see how God sees us in Christ. And then in Ephesians chapters 4 to 6, we see how the world should see Christ 
in us. And that simple little outline gives us great insight into this book and these next few chapters. So with the first three chapters of Ephesians behind us, with the beginning of chapter 4, we we transition now from Paul's main doctrinal teaching to the practical instruction in Ephesians. And in chapters 4 to 6, Paul is going to build on the foundation that he's laid and, and tell us how to live the Christian life at church, in the world, and at home. And then he'll remind us of our spiritual warfare before bringing his letter to a close. Paul begins his practical teaching with an exhortation. Verses 1 and 2 give us Paul's introductory statement on the Christian life, describing it as a walk, focusing on four vital attitudes or characteristics that are essential to our Christian walk or our Christian life. Look with me now at verse 1. And Paul begins... Now the second half of Ephesians with these words in chapter 4, verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. The word therefore uh, refers back to the entire first half of the letter, chapters 1 through 3, and indicates that the practical instruction that follows is based on the doctrinal truths that Paul has taught in the first three chapters. And we see this kind of transition from doctrine to duty, from principle to practice in Paul's other letters as well. I mean, for example, in the book of Romans, the doctrinal section covers chapters 1 through 11. The practical section, chapters 12 to 15, and, and, and that section in Romans begins with the, these words in Romans 12.1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. In the first four chapters of Galatians, Paul explains Christian liberty. And then in chapters 5 and 6, he exhorts Christians to live in that liberty or in that freedom. We also see the same sort of division between the doctrinal and the practical in Philippians 2 and Colossians 3, and then in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And this is important for us to understand. First of all, because true Christian teaching is not intended to produce knowledge only. The whole point of doctrine is not just so that we can fill our heads and then be big-headed, but the, the whole point of doctrine, rather, is to create a faith that then responds in action. And this is why Paul didn't end the letter after chapter 3. Secondly, Paul obviously considered it essential for us to know and understand the truth about God, ourselves, and salvation. I mean, Christianity is not simply a, a recipe of things that, that you are to do, It's a relationship that demands knowledge, understanding, and faith. And that Paul spends his first three chapters teaching doctrine indicates that the only proper foundation for Christian action is Christian truth. Because it is impossible to live a Christian life without knowing the realities of the life that Christ has provided for us. Right practice must always be based on right principle. Right doctrine is essential to right living. And now, before giving his appeal, Paul says, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord. So he once again refers to himself as a prisoner. 
And by mentioning his imprisonment, he's gently reminding his readers that he knows the Christian life can be costly. And that he has paid considerable cost himself because of his obedience to the Lord. And so he wasn't asking them, he's not going to ask them to live in a way which he himself had not lived. Or to pay a price that he himself was not willing to pay. And so although from a human perspective, his present physical circumstance in prison seemed extremely negative, but Paul wanted his readers to know that this did not change his commitment to or his confidence in the Lord. You notice Paul doesn't say that he's a prisoner of Rome or of Emperor Nero, which, humanly speaking, he was. But he didn't believe he was in jail because of Nero. I mean, Paul knew that Nero was not the one who had the final say about him. Jesus did. And so the duration of his confinement wasn't determined by the emperor, but rather by the Lord Jesus Christ. He was a prisoner for the Lord. He also didn't say that he was in jail because of the opposition of the Jewish people who rioted when he went into the temple, since that was the cause of him being taken into custody in the first place. But that's not what he said. Because he knew that he was not in prison because of the Roman authorities or the Jewish authorities. He knew ultimately that he was in prison for the sake of Christ. Paul was so convinced that the whole of his life, including his imprisonment, was under the sovereign lordship of Christ, that he refers to himself as a prisoner for the Lord. I mean, this is why Paul was in prison. He was in prison for Jesus' sake. He was in prison for the sake of the gospel. And as Paul writes from prison, he's essentially telling his readers, it's worth it. It's worth it all. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you, he says. I urge you. The word urge means to ask for earnestly, to request, to to plead for, or to appeal to, to, to earnestly request or encourage a response or action. And it implies an intense feeling. You know, strong desire. And in this context, it's, it's not simply a request, but rather a plea. It's, it's an imploring or, or a begging. I mean, there's a, a very passionate urgency in, in Paul's tone. He earnestly exhorts and, and appeals to his readers. He doesn't command them as an, as an apostle with prophetic authority certainly could have done. Rather, he is urging them. He's passionately urging them as a prisoner for the Lord. He's, he's appealing to them in love as one who has been incarcerated for the sake of the gospel, as one who is himself paying the price and, and setting them a sacrificial example of godliness. And what is it that Paul urges them to do? Well, look back at the verse. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to what? Walk. To walk. This word walk in its literal sense of going along or moving about on foot at a moderate pace is found numerous times in the Gospels. However, the same verb is more often used throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament epistles in a metaphorical way. And the metaphorical use of the word walk in the Bible refers to the way an individual lives or conducts his or her life. In this sense, it means to follow a certain course of life or to conduct oneself in a certain way. And it simply refers to how you and I live our lives. 
It's speaking about our conduct, our behavior, our day-by-day-by-day living, our, our habitual way of life. And that Paul describes the Christian life as a walk tells us quite a bit. It says, first of all, that Christianity is not something that just takes up a, a certain little corner of our lives. Instead, it involves the way in which we live our entire lives, our whole life. Our faith is to govern everything about our lives in every area of our lives. Secondly, the term walk tells us that the Christian life involves continuous progress. You see, none of us have arrived at our destination. We always have need for growth and maturity. I mean, Paul said this of himself in Philippians 3. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You see, God calls us to an ever-increasing knowledge of Him and an ever-increasing holiness. And we are all far too prone to arrive at at some spiritual plateau along the way and then get real comfortable there and think that we've somehow made it and we don't have much farther to go. I mean, we're pretty good right where we're at. But nothing could be further from the truth. Because the Christian life is an ever-progressing forward walk leading us to so much more than we presently have and are. And the Christian life is a lifelong process. And along the way, there's going to be setbacks. But the overall pattern should be one of continual growth and and progress. And third, Paul speaks of the Christian life as a walk because it requires effort on our part. We're not passive. We don't just sit back and do nothing. No, Walk requires effort on our part. We will not increase in grace and godliness without applying ourselves to our Christian life. When we receive salvation as a free gift of God's grace, through no works of, of our own, but then we grow in that salvation by working out what Paul says God has worked already worked within. And we're not going to grow without giving ourselves to the study and meditation of God's Word, without spending time in prayer, without participating in the life of the church, and without regularly attending worship. The church, the local church, is God's context for change. And it mystifies me how so many professed believers today think they can get along quite well without being in a local church, or being there very little. You're not going to grow and make progress in the Christian life apart from regularly attending corporate worship. The Christian life is a walk. Well, how are we supposed to walk? Well, we're not left to wonder. Paul tells us, look back at the verse. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. You see, in light of all the amazing theological realities of chapters 1 through 3, 
Paul urges the Ephesians and us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. And the call uh, of which he has called us is the sovereign, saving call of God. I mean, God's call takes us back to the beginning of our Christian lives. It is his gracious, sovereign call that delivered us out of Satan's kingdom and placed us in Christ's kingdom. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. True. We called on him to save us. But our call was a response to his. God is always the initiator, and man is the responder. And as Paul mentioned in the opening of this letter, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, he, God, chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. And this calling is to a relationship with God through Christ in which he bestows an abundance of blessings on us, all of which he has extolled in the first half of this letter. You see, the key to the Christian life is to realize that we have been called by God in Jesus Christ and that his calling changes everything for us. It changes everything for us. It changes our destiny. And it changes our path, our walk as well. God's call means that we have God's power to do His will. But it also means we no longer belong to ourselves. We have been bought with a price through the precious blood of Christ. And now we must live in a way that is fitting for a man or woman who bears Christ's name in this world. And this is what Paul is emphasizing by speaking of walking in a manner worthy of your calling. The Greek word translated here as worthy means being fitting or, or proper and, and corresponding to, to what should be expected. And so Paul is calling his readers, he's, he's calling you and I to live lives equal to the reality of our calling or in a way consistent with our calling which Paul has described in the first three chapters. And the apostle uses similar language in a number of texts. For example, in Philippians 1, verse 27, he exhorts the believers in that city to let their manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. In Colossians 1.10, Paul prayed for the Colossians to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. And then in uh, 1 Thessalonians 2.12, Paul declared that he earlier encouraged them to walk in a manner worthy of God. And so that no one uh, gets the wrong idea about this, we must understand that Paul is not saying that by our efforts or good works and commitment, we can become worthy of God's love and grace and the salvation he offers as if it were by our merits that we gain eternal life. Nothing could be further from the truth. This is the opposite of the gospel of grace that we find throughout Scripture. You see, no matter how hard uh, we might try, we can never walk in a manner that makes us worthy of the Lord's love or salvation. The only thing that we are worthy of is eternal punishment. We can never make ourselves worthy of the least of God's blessings. To walk in a manner worthy of the Lord means to live in a way that is appropriate to live in a way that is fitting, 
to live in a way that is consistent with who the Lord is to us and what He has done, is doing, and will do for us. It's to live in a, in a way that reflects or displays how much He is worthy of our love and obedience. I mean, our great God and the amazing undeserved kindness that is ours in the Gospel are of such infinite value. I mean, so exalted and beautiful and full of glory that we should always live in such a way that brings credit to the grace of God. In our lives, by His grace, should reflect positively on God. In our lives, should adorn the gospel and make it look attractive. In Jesus, the cross, the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, are worthy of lives that reflect their great value, not ours. And so Paul is not saying that we become worthy of being called, but that having been called, We are to live in a way that reflects the glory, the beauty, the holiness, and the great privilege of being a child of God. He's saying that there is a Christian lifestyle. There is a way in which we as Christians are to live, and in which we find blessings and commend the gospel to the world. It is a walk or a lifestyle that says yes to some things and no to other things because of the truths we believe and that govern our lives. You know, various writers speak of it in, in this way. The Apostle John in 1 John 1.7 speaks of walking in the light, referring to integrity and purity. John also says we must walk in the truth, which means to hold fast to the Bible's teaching. And not just holding fast to it, actually living it out, actually obeying it, not picking and choosing, but rather seeking by His grace to obey it all. Paul often contrasts different ways of walking. 2 Corinthians 5.7 says, We walk by faith, not by sight. In Romans 8.4, Paul says, We must walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Ephesians 5.2 says to walk in love, following Jesus' example of self-sacrificing ministry. Ephesians 5.8 speaks of our moral conduct, saying, At one time you were in the darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. I mean, all of these ways, and in all of these ways, the term walk signifies our whole manner of living. It is to be holy, believing, obedient, and loving. I mean, God has called us to Himself by His grace. And He calls us to follow Him. And every one of us has our, has our own calling, and, and they're different to a certain degree, but we all have this in common. We are called to be disciples of Christ who walk as He did by the power that He gives. And He said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows Me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Christian life is a walk. And Paul says we are to compare our walk to the teaching of God's Word. And don't compare your walk to your neighbor's walk or your spouse's walk, but rather compare your own walk. Compare your own walk to the teaching of God's Word. And then ask yourself, is my walk, is my lifestyle, is my day-to-day living, my, my habitual pattern of life, is it, is it 
Am I living worthy of my calling as a Christian? Am I walking worthy of my calling? Is the gospel being adorned in my life? Am I following hard after Christ because He is the sole goal? Or is Christ and the things of God pushed to the periphery? We must ask ourselves, am I walking worthy of my calling as a Christian, as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ? And then where it's not, where our lives don't measure up, we're to acknowledge that before God, confess that and and seek repentance, and then uh, a new obedience in the power and strength that God supplies. I mean, you know, it's so strange to me that, that obedience has almost become a, a bad word in the church. I mean, I mean that's, doesn't that, that's so strange. We're called to a life of obedience. That's not legalism. That's biblical Christianity. In fact, that's just Christianity 101. Christian life is a walk. And we're to walk worthy of the calling to which we have been called. And now in verse 2, Paul explains what it looks like to walk worthy. And it's interesting to note that when Paul begins his practical instruction, the first thing he tells us is not what to do, but rather what we are to be what we are to be. And this emphasis isn't unique to Paul either. We see this in Jesus' teaching as well. For example, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus demands a lot of action. He demands we do a number of things. But he begins with the Beatitudes, which is a statement of the kind of character Christians must have, and it's very similar to what Paul writes here. One man writes of Jesus' teaching, saying formulas, programs, three steps, five stages, and ten secrets are not the key to Christian discipleship. Success in marriage, family, child-rearing, finances, work, Christian mission, and everything else flows from character. If the heart is not right, everything else eventually falls. Or if the heart is right, everything else eventually falls into place. If the heart is not right, nothing else can become or remain right. And this is Paul's emphasis in verse 2. And here he lists attitudes, not techniques or methods. I mean, in the world and even in evangelical circles, people are more interested in techniques than in attitudes. And so they buy books written by people who appear successful and and who tell them how to be successful too. But the Bible has little to say about techniques and methods, but it certainly has much to say about obedience and about the attitudes which are conducive to godly conduct and godly living. And these attitudes that Paul lists for should characterize our entire life and they should characterize our entire church. These attitudes are to be displayed in the church toward our brothers and sisters in Christ. I mean, look now at verse 2 
And these four vital attitudes or character qualities that should mark the life of every believer. These are four character qualities that are essential to walking worthy of our calling. So look back at verses 1 and 2. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. How is that, Paul? Verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. So let's look at each one of these. The first is humility. Humility. Something despised in the world, right? Humility is the opposite of pride or self-assertion. C.S. Lewis wrote, The essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. And Lewis points out that pride is not happy just having something, but only by having more of it than others. Pride loves power and self-glory, and this is why he says it's so opposed to God. And Lewis sums up by saying, pride always means enmity. It is enmity. And not only enmity between man and man, but enmity to God. And if we are saved by grace, through faith, not by work, so that no one may boast, and we are, then it's quite evident that Christians cannot be proud. A person cannot even become a Christian without humility, without recognizing himself as a sinner and worthy only of God's just condemnation. You see, faith in Christ demands a humble confession of sin, but the proud person will not admit their sin and thus will not seek Christ and the gospel as their only hope and remedy. Whereas the humble confess their guilt and and their need of mercy. A walk or a life that is worthy of our calling is first and foremost humble. Humility is essential in the life of a Christian. In fact, it is a defining mark of a true Christian. One man said, humility is arguably the most essential, all-encompassing virtue of the Christian life. And the word humility here is literally lowly-mindedness. Lowly-mindedness. However, it's important to understand that true humility does not involve an an attitude of self-deprecation. Humility is not thinking little of yourself, and it's certainly not thinking highly of yourself. Humility is thinking rightly about yourself. It's making a right estimate of yourself. One man said, Humility is not simply feeling small and useless like an inferiority complex. Rather, it is sensing how great and glorious God is and seeing myself in that light. See, humility comes from having a a true knowledge, an accurate assessment of ourselves, which is found in the Word of God. Humility comes not by focusing on ourselves, not by comparing ourselves to others, which the Bible says is foolish, But humility comes by focusing on Christ. 
and seeing ourselves in light of who he is, because he's the standard. And as we focus on him, it keeps things in the proper perspective. Because it shows us how poor and needy we are, and it keeps us in that place of humble dependence upon God's mercy and grace. I mean, when Paul looked at himself in light of who Christ is, he saw the foremost of sinners. When Peter looked at himself in light of who Christ is, he said, Depart from me, I'm a sinful man, O Lord. When Job looked at himself in the light of who God is, he said, Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. You know, when Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up, what did he say? Woe is me, I am undone, I am a man of unclean lips. Humility is thinking rightly about ourselves. It's seeing ourselves in light of who Christ is. So those who are humble are, are, are neither high-minded nor easily offended nor self-centered. Instead, the humble are oriented towards a loving service to others, even in the lowliest of tasks. The humble are always looking beyond themselves, esteeming other believers as better than themselves, and, and never insisting on their own way. In fact, you could say the humility is defined by Paul in Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4, where he said, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. That's the humble person. And of course, Jesus himself is is the great example of of humility, isn't he? And that is why Paul goes on uh, to say in verses 5 through 11 of Philippians chapter 2, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And Jesus set the example of humble, selfless servants by his willingness to be the least of, all, the least of his disciples and to be the servant of all. I mean, to see others as more important than you are, that's, that's a major challenge, isn't it? I mean, we have to battle our flesh and our pride continually on that one, don't we? Don't we? We all know it's true. But that's what it takes. Right? Don't be selfish, don't be conceited. But in humility, count others as more significant or more important than yourself. But you see, we're all self-oriented by nature, but, but we're exhorted here to relate toward one another with all humility. You know, Peter said, all of you, speaking to the church, all of you in the church, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. And so the call here is to put ourselves in the lower place, the place of costly service to others, treating them as more important than ourselves. You see, our our success, our fame, education, wealth, personality, good works, or, or anything else we are or have in ourselves counts for absolutely nothing before God. 
None of those things commend us to God. Not one of them. And the more we rely on and glory in such things, the greater barrier they become to our communion with God. You see, every person comes before the Lord with nothing to commend him and everything to condemn him. But when he comes with the spirit of the penitent tax collector saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner... Well, then God will willingly and lovingly accept them. For everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, but he who humbles himself shall what? Be exalted. See, unity in the church can be preserved if the entire congregation adorns itself with humility. Because as one man said, humility is the oil that allows relationships in the church to run smoothly and lovingly. Humility. The second vital characteristic is gentleness, sometimes translated as meekness. Whereas humility is an attitude of mind, gentleness refers to the outward manifestation of a person's humble demeanor. And humility always produces gentleness or meekness. One man said, meekness is one of the surest signs of true humility. You cannot possess meekness without humility, and you cannot possess meekness with pride, because pride and humility are mutually exclusive, so are pride and meekness or gentleness. You know, people tend to associate gentleness with weakness. But gentleness is not weakness. In fact, it has nothing to do with weakness, timidity, indifference, or cowardice. You know, this word gentleness or meekness combines strength and and gentleness, and it's often described as power under control. Power under control. I mean, take Moses. He was described as the meekest man on the face of the earth. Yet he was one of the strongest leaders ever, a leader who actually challenged the very power of the throne of Egypt. You know, gentleness or, or meekness speaks of the, the quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance of, uh, or, or not having a, a superior attitude. It implies that a person's natural strengths, abilities, and and mental powers are harnessed by the Spirit of God for the good of God's kingdom and others. It speaks of a submissive and teachable spirit that manifests itself in genuine humility and consideration toward others. I mean, gentle people are not harsh with others. You know, they don't fight to get their way. They don't turn everything into a winner-takes-all competition. Instead, they demonstrate consideration for the needs and the feelings of others. As one man said, the meek or gentle person has a sweet temper of spirit toward God, others, and the daily frustrations of life. He or she is not prone to anger, but humble, sweet, and mild. Someone might say, well, that's, that's not who I am. I'm Irish, or I'm this, or I'm that. That's just the way I am. I was born that way. Oh, so what do you say? You're, you are, you're a special case? Hmm? Sanctification stops in your life with that issue? No, it doesn't. You're not exempt. 
None of us are exempt. This is what we're called to. And Jesus is the greatest example of this, as he is all of them. And he said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly or humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. I mean, Jesus was especially gentle with women and children, yet he could demonstrate righteous anger and indignation when it was called for. You know, in this world of ours, the qualities that that assure success are often thought of as strength, self-assurance, assertiveness, aggressiveness, even intimidation. But that's not what God puts a premium on. No, God puts a premium on gentleness, meekness. Meekness isn't something that is much admired uh, among men because it's too readily mistaken for weakness. But I can tell you this, meekness is admired in heaven. And only a strong person can display complete self-control and restraint in the face of extreme provocation. And this kind of meekness is a fruit of the Spirit. And if all of us in the church walked in humility and gentleness as Jesus did, and virtually uh, all conflicts would disappear. They would virtually disappear. Third, Paul gives a third vital characteristic essential to the Christian's worthy walk, and that is patience. Patience. Which is an outgrowth of humility and, and gentleness. And the word translated here as patience literally means being long-tempered, sometimes translated long-suffering. So patience is long-suffering in the face of hardship. It's, it's the ability to endure through adversity. And the patient person endures negative circumstances and never gives in to them. It's the ability to endure being inconvenienced, taken advantage of, and being wrong but never striking back. I mean, Aristotle said that the greatest Greek virtue was refusal to tolerate any insult and readiness to strike back. But that's not God's way for his people. The patient saint accepts whatever other people do to him. He is patient with all men, even those who try his patience to the very limit. Patient person has a slow fuse. He's patient with those who slander him and who question his motives for serving the Lord. He doesn't complain when his calling seems less glamorous than someone else's or when the Lord sends him to a place that's that's difficult or perhaps even dangerous. He or she is, is steadfast and persistent, willing to suffer aggravation or even persecution without complaint because he remembers that God the Son left his heavenly home of love, holiness, and glory to come to this stinking earth and be hated, rejected, spat upon, and crucified without once returning evil for evil or complaining to his Father. The patient saint accepts God's plan for everything without questioning or grumbling. And patience continues showing love and mercy to others even when being wrong. It continues to bear with the weakness of others. And the supreme example, of course, of patience is God himself who through Jesus Christ has shown himself patient toward 
those who deserve divine judgment, and that's every one of us. And the obvious implication, of course, is that this is, this is how his people are to be toward one another. So how are you doing with this virtue? You know, for some of us, the microwave is too slow, right? You know, oh Lord, give me patience and, and hurry up, is our prayer. But you know, lack of patience is really, it really displays a lack of humility and a lack of love. Because Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 13.4 that love is what? Patient. To have patient love. We're to endure annoyances and challenges over a period of time. You know, it, it, it's real easy to learn facts. But it's very difficult to be patient with people. And so how do we become patient or long-suffering? <laughs> I was telling the men yesterday at, at men's prayer, I, I read about... Uh, this man who came to his pastor and he asked his pastor to pray for him to have patience. pastor said, let's do that right now. So the pastor prayed, Lord, please send great tribulation into this brother's life. And the man said, hey, wait a minute. You must not have heard what I said. I asked you to pray that I might have patience. I didn't ask you to pray for tribulation." pastor said, oh, I heard, what you, I heard what you said. And then he pointed him to Romans 5.3, which reads, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance or patience. Well, most of us don't have to pray for sufferings, right? They just seem to come. They do come. Instead, we should simply use the trials and suffering we already have to become, by God's grace, long-suffering and patient. And Paul's teaching in Romans 5 goes on to show how valuable this is. He, he says in Romans 5, 4, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And the fourth vital characteristic that Paul mentions is bearing with one another in love. Bearing with one another in love. And all of us who are married know when you put two individuals, a man and a woman from different backgrounds and personalities, different likes and dislikes, into close contact over a long period of time, sooner or later, there's going to be misunderstandings and conflict. All the married people know what I'm talking about. And then if you add children the potential for problems increases exponentially. And then if you expand the numbers to 100 or 200 or more in a local church, it doesn't take a statistician to figure out that the potential for conflict is at the red alert level. Right? But you see, unity among believers is a big deal in the Bible. It's a real big deal. I mean, Jesus prayed for it in John 17 just before he went to the cross. And that is why Paul says here that along with humility, gentleness, and patience, 
we're to bear with one another. And bearing with one another literally means that you put up with someone. But not in an exasperating way, but with a sense of genuine love and compassion. It means bearing with someone's shortcomings or quirks. It doesn't mean turning a blind eye to sin or, or tolerating sin. It doesn't mean that at all. But it does mean giving the other person room to be different when it comes to non-moral areas. You see, pride makes us think like this. This is what pride makes us think. Well, you know, anyone with half a brain could see that my way is the best way to do this. Right? That's what pride does. Bearing with one another says, well, that's not my preference, but it's certainly okay. Bearing with one another describes the patience that we should have with the failings and the different ways of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Because it is inevitable that we will see one another's weaknesses, shortcomings, and failures, and we all have them. As one man said, to live above with the saints we love, oh, that will be glory. But to live below with the saints we know, well, that's another story. It's not easy to put up with the irritations, the criticisms, the, the harsh or bitter words, the unfairness which some of our brothers and sisters can inflict upon us. But they're not perfect, and neither are we, and neither is the church. Not one of us is perfect. I know that might surprise some of you, <laughs> but not one of us is perfect. I mean, we're all going through the process of sanctification, and it's a lifelong process. And it takes the grace of God for us to put up with the idiosyncrasies of others as it does for them to put up with ours. But we must bear with one another. You know, make allowance for each other's faults and, and not let these things keep us from interacting with them, being kind to them, being involved in their lives, loving them and helping them. Look, every, every Christian fellowship is made up of all kinds of people. All kinds of people. It's one of the beauties of the church. It's diversity. So every Christian fellowship is made up of all kinds of people. And that means that we're going to be in close fellowship with people who are very different than we are. But again, that's one of the amazing things about the church. It's diversity. But loved ones, the church cannot survive without believers bearing with one another, which is the fruit of humility, gentleness, and patience. And the church is the place where people must bear with one another in love. I mean, we're, we're in process, all of us. And we are not yet what we are going to be, and we need to bear with one another in love as this process goes on. Bearing with one another in love. You know, Paul's particular concern in Ephesians 4, as we'll see beginning next week, is, is Christian unity, unity in the church. It's what the first 16 verses are about. And we can see then why he focuses on these four attitudes. You know, humility is essential to unity because pride is a source of most conflict. 
Gentleness means controlling our will so that we put God and others first. Patience is needed because things don't always go our way within the church. Bearing with one another in love sums up what Jesus has done and does for us on a daily basis. And if we're to have unity and peace together, we must bear with bear one another's faults because of the love that we have from God. And so there could hardly be a more valuable teaching today when one of the primary problems in churches is conflict and division. And look, it's one thing for the church to divide over important doctrinal issues. And there are some hills that you die on. There are essential doctrines that you die on, and you may have to divide over those issues. So it's one thing for the church to, to divide over, or to be divided over important doctrinal issues. But that's not the case most of the time. Many churches today are in utter turmoil over matters of personal preference and pride. Because of conflicts that could easily be resolved if its members were walking worthy of their calling with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in God-given love. And according to Paul, whatever else we may do, however morally upright we may be, however much we may serve the church and reach out to the lost, if we're not cultivating these four vital characteristics, then we are not responding in a practical way to the gospel of God's grace. We are not walking in a manner worthy of our calling. And so instead of adorning the gospel, making it attractive, we are bringing reproach upon the name of Christ and his bride, the church, and loved ones. These things should not be. And so let's come back to the question that we spoke about earlier. You know, the Christian life is a walk. Paul says we're to compare our walk to the teaching of God's word. And we're to ask ourselves, is my walk, my lifestyle, my day-to-day habitual way of living worthy of my calling as a Christian? And now we can ask, am I walking in all humility and gentleness? Am I walking with patience? Am I bearing with others in love? Does that describe my Christian life? Does that describe my day-to-day habitual way of living? And if it's not, and as we said earlier, then we have to acknowledge that before God, seek repentance and cleansing, and then a new obedience and the power and the strength that God supplies. Why? Because this is what God has called us to. And we believe his word, don't we? And so Paul says to his readers and to us, in light of all the glorious doctrinal truths in chapters 1 through 3 that are realities in your, in your lives, I urge you, I, I plead with you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. 
And we certainly give each other plenty of opportunities to practice these four virtues, don't we? But it's part of being sanctified, isn't it? This is part of being sanctified. It's part of growing and and maturing in Christ. I read about a man who said that every morning he would get up, read one verse in, in Scripture, and then he would say, Lord, please enable me to carry out this one verse today in my daily life. Well, I think that's a good thing for us to do as well, isn't it? Just think how our lives, our marriages, our families, and our church would be transformed if in our daily lives we walked in all humility and gentleness with patience, bearing with one another in love, thus living lives worthy of the amazing salvation that Christ has achieved and that God has freely given to us. I mean, think of the changes that would make, or think think of the the changes uh, that would take place. Just think of it. Marriages would be transformed. Families would be transformed. Churches would be transformed. And think of the testimony it would be to the outside world of the power of the gospel and of the love and mercy and grace of God. You know, may God help us. May he enable us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. Amen. On behalf of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Bible Church of Palisadro, we hope and pray this study will help you continue growing in the Word. If you've been blessed by today's message, or if you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can call us at 530-547-4400. Again, 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the church website at calvarybiblepc.org calvarybiblepc.org Thank you for listening and may God richly bless you. It's your love that makes me see